Let me invite you to open the scriptures with me this morning to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, if you're using a pew Bible, I think it's on page 823. I looked earlier and now it slipped my mind. So how's that for short-term memory loss? I'm sure if that's not right, somebody will let me know after a while. But uh, in that neighborhood, they're about. So we return to Mark today, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the four uh, gospel books of the New Testament that uh, attest to the life and the mission and ministry of Jesus Christ. And so today we return uh, to Mark uh, for our third and final message series from Mark titled Journey to the Cross. You know, as Christians, we when we talk about Jesus, we typically talk about the cross. We make a fairly big deal of the cross, uh, and rightly so. Uh, there have been a number of attempts in recent years to get to the real uh, historical Jesus, and uh, you might think the Da Vinci Code or uh, certain names that have been associated with various attempts at this movement, names like Marcus Borg, uh, Rob Bell at times, um, other books written about uh, the Gospel of Judas or the Gospel of Thomas or other so-called missing uh, Gospels. And many times these are attempts uh, to cast doubt on the validity of the biblical witness uh, concerning uh, this Jesus. Let's not follow in that path. Uh, that suggests an unimpressive view of the providential revelation and preservation of God's word. Church, let's stand under the guidance and the authority of Scripture, just as it has been written and preserved over many years by the Spirit uh, of, of God. And so because Mark and other uh, New Testament writers make a big deal of the cross, we too want to make a big deal of the cross. In fact, the final third of Mark's gospel focuses in on the final week of Jesus's life. And it's to this text, this section, this journey that we now turn. So as you find your place there in Mark chapter 11, we invite you to join me standing for the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Bible reads this way, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. And those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's pause there and pray together. And Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the guidance and the inspiration of your spirit in giving your word to us through human authors. Father, we thank you for your role in preserving it uh, Lord, now speak to us through it by the presence and power 
of your spirit here today. Lead us that our lives might be changed, conformed more and more to the image and character of Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Church, you may be seated. So here is uh, what's happening. Uh, Jesus is on his way uh, to Jerusalem. We've been seeing that in the previous chapters of Mark's gospel. He's on his way to Jerusalem with his disciples for the Passover festival. And many other pilgrims are also on their way for this annual celebration. And Jesus is about to make an entrance. Uh, So he sends two of his disciples, the text says, to uh, a village. And he tells them that they will find a colt tied there that no one has ever ridden. Uh, which, by the way, there's Old Testament precedent for uh, unridden animals being used for sacred purposes. Uh, he sends two of his disciples to go to, to fetch this colt. They go, they get it, they bring it back, they put their cloaks on it. Jesus sits on it, uh, and crowds go before and behind Jesus. They surround him, uh, and they begin uh, declaring his greatness. Uh, they begin shouting. They say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, blessing, blessed is the, uh, the coming uh, kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Uh, they are quoting uh, references to Psalm 118. Uh, references of scripture that uh, became associated uh, with the Messiah and messianic expectations. And so here they are declaring through uh, their voices that they desire and they hope that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is a political Davidic Messiah who has come to liberate them, specifically to liberate them from Roman oppression. And Indeed, we know, according to the witness of Scripture, that Jesus is the Messiah, but he's not come for that liberation. He has come to provide a different kind of liberation. And now is his time. Now he makes his entrance and he enters as a king, demonstrating both majesty and meekness. Jesus demonstrates majesty and meekness. Majesty and meekness. We typically associate majesty with uh, someone who uh, is majestic, someone who's a kingly figure, a ruler, someone who's in charge. He comes and he demonstrates majesty and meekness. This passage of Scripture is commonly referred to as uh, the triumphal entry, and rightly so. For Jesus is hailed as a king here. But he should come, at least we would think, that he should come like Mel Gibson in the movie Braveheart riding a a stallion, a a war horse. That's not what he does. He, He comes ambling into Jerusalem on a young donkey. He comes in meekness. Yes, hailed as the king, but a different kind of king. Once again, Jesus shatters cultural expectations. He comes and he confronts. He comes and he surprises. He comes and he serves. He comes and he conquers. Remember the vision that John sees recorded in Revelation chapter 5? He begins to weep when he sees the significance of this scroll that needs to be opened, and there's no one there to open it. He begins to weep. To weep. In uh, Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, we read that one of the elders said to, to John, he says, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. 
He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Verse 6, though. John says, then I, I looked. I didn't see a lamb. I saw, I didn't see a lion. I looked and I saw a lamb. Lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and, and the elders. A lion, fierce animal that represents majesty and strength, but a lamb, perhaps representing meekness and mild. Jesus is the lion and the lamb. At the same time, a sovereign judge and the humble one who provides his life as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. This one, this Messiah, this Jesus, the Christ, is one who comes and is rejected. He's despised. He's misunderstood. This crowd in Mark chapter 11 would soon change their mind about him. But even so, all of this is part of God's sovereign plan. God promised this. He predicted this. He prophesied about this. The Messiah would fulfill Messianic prophecies. Jesus comes and he fulfills Messianic prophecies. The scriptures foretold his arrival and told about him. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, one such example The prophet Zechariah, the Lord said, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, Zechariah prophesied during uh, difficult days. He prophesied after Isaiah. We've looked at Isaiah's prophecies the last couple of weeks and how Isaiah primarily speaks to pre-exilic people of God and a people who are in Babylonian captivity. Well, Zechariah prophesies after that. The exile is over. Many of them have returned to, to Jerusalem or to Israel, to Judah. But the excitement soon wanes. His life continues to be difficult as pagan armies continue to oppress them. And through Zechariah, the Lord says, a king and a Messiah will come. He is coming, and when he comes, he'll come in righteousness, and he'll come bringing victory. Jesus is that one. Jesus is that Messiah. And he comes in righteousness, and he comes bringing victory. He comes lowly and riding on a donkey. He comes on a, on a colt, the foe of a donkey. The majestic and meek King Jesus fulfills messianic prophecies. And... And I think we see that he practices providence in fulfilling his purposes. Jesus practices providence in fulfilling his purposes. By providence, I mean deliberate care and clear guidance of particular events toward a specific end in mind. Deliberate care, clear guidance. I think we see this in the detail of the cult. Jesus knows exactly where this cult is going to be. He knows about it. He knows how its owners are going to respond when his disciples tell them that the Lord needs this cult. I think we see it again in verse 11 as Jesus enters Jerusalem and he goes into the temple. He looks around. Clearly something is on his mind. And yet he knows that now is not quite the time to address it. He goes to Bethany for the night and he comes back in the morning. 
deliberate knowledge, care, guidance. I think we see it in the overarching message of Mark. We think of Mark portraying the events of Jesus' life in such a way that, that Jesus occasionally tells those who recognize his identity not to let others know it yet. The demons, even the disciples, they began to recognize the identity of Jesus as the Messiah. And Jesus many times tells them to be quiet. Now is not the time to reveal his identity. It needed to be revealed in a particular time and in a particular way. But then soon, within days following Mark chapter 11 and Jesus' triumphal entry, we read in chapter 14, verse 41, in the Garden of Gethsemane, that Jesus returns a third time to his disciples and he says to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. In other words, now the time has come. The hour has come. Jesus practicing providence in fulfilling his purposes. You know, Jesus comes demonstrating majesty and meekness. Let's behold the wisdom, power, and humility of this one. Let's just behold his wisdom, his power, and his humility. Behold, not a word that we use very often. In fact, most of us probably don't ever use it unless we're in church singing a hymn that has that word or reading a text of Scripture that uses that word, but a word that means look, see, observe, take this in, notice this. As if, just as you would if you were looking at the stars up in the sky on a dark night out in the country. Perhaps as you would watch the waves and the sunset over the water at the beach, watch the Listen to the waves crashing against the sand. Pause and take this in. Listen, hear this. Likewise, we should behold the wisdom and the power and the humility of Jesus. For he knows exactly what he's doing. He has power to carry out his mission in the perfect time. And he does so in humility. Behold the wisdom power and humility of Jesus. Prince Jesus comes and demonstrates majesty and meekness. In his 2014 uh, book, Jesus is Greater Than uh, Religion, author Jefferson uh, Bethke writes this. He says, we are all on this journey toward real and authentic truth. He says, you won't find an arbitrary concept when you get there but a man with scars in his hands and a crown on his head. And of course, that man we know is Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Savior of the world. He is Savior and he is Lord. And as the rest of the story unfolds, his lordship becomes increasingly clear. Let's look back at the text together. Mark chapter 11, verse 12. Let's say, well, let's stand once again. You, look, you guys look like you need a fifth inning stretch here. How about that? All right, Mark chapter 11, verse 12. The rest of the story. Here we go. The next day, uh, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if, in, if it had any fruit. 
When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Verse 17, and as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. Verse 20, in the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 25. Thank you. You can have a seat. So here, through this text, I think Jesus dismisses fruitless religion. Jesus dismisses, he rejects, he dismisses fruitless religion. I think that's what's going on here with these two stories intertwined. First being the the account of the fig tree, an acted out parable with a point. The second being the clearing of the temple, an affront to failed religiosity. Through these stories, Jesus is casting judgment on the empty ritualistic religion of Jerusalem in his day. See, though there were no figs yet on this tree, by this time there should have been signs of figs on the tree. There should have been some figs that were beginning to develop even if they weren't quite ripe yet. In fact, in the Old Testament, fig trees are used as metaphors to describe Israel and their status before God. Jesus is confronting them through these episodes, saying that their worship has become empty ritualism. It's devoid of inner devotion. It's hypocritical. Jesus himself said in John chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, he, he said, I am the true vine. My father is the gardener. Branch, uh, he cuts off every branch of me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. A couple chapters earlier, in chapter 13 of John's gospel, he speaks to his disciples. Jesus tells them, a new command I give you. As I have loved you, so you must love each other. By this, everyone will know that you are my people. You are my disciples if you love one another. In other words, biblical worship is worship that should result in fruit. Fruit, signs of being a follower of the God of the Scriptures, a follower of Jesus. Are you bearing fruit? Are you serving God? Are you worshiping 
Christ, have an overflow of a life and a heart that's been captivated by the grace of Jesus or has it simply become or been empty ritual? You see, religion is me-centered, becomes me-centered. My efforts, my attempts, my tradition. But the gospel is Christ-centered. It's about Him. What is your motivation? What is, my, what is our motivation for obeying the one and only God? Josephus, a Jewish, ancient Jewish historian, uh, writes that during one particular year of Passover, uh, during the Passover week, there were some 255,000 lambs that were purchased and sold and sacrificed uh, in Jerusalem. It's part of this uh, tradition. This uh, tradition mandated, this practice that was mandated during that season uh, by God to remember his deliverance of uh, the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And so the temple was the, the place where uh, this practice was by and large carried out. In fact, the court of the Gentiles, which was the furthest area of the temple that Gentiles, non-Jews, could go in, became uh, the location for this buying and selling and currency exchange, business practice. So how in the world were Gentiles who had converted to faith in the God of Israel, faith in Yahweh, how were they to worship God at the temple when they were just surrounded by business and busyness and chaos and noise? Jesus comes and he confronts this. He confronts this chaotic activity that is not getting to the heart of worship. Remember what Jesus says. In fact, in the very next chapter, chapter 12, he's asked a question about the greatest command. And Jesus says the greatest command is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Jesus wants our hearts. The Lord wants our hearts. At the very temple, sacrificial system was set up ultimately. That was the aim. Hearts that were captivated by God and His mercy. Jesus wants our heart and He exposes hearts. He's a God who exposes hearts. Remember the story of Mark chapter 12 that we looked at a few weeks ago where He encountered this rich man and the rich man comes to Jesus and He says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, You know the commandments. He says, I've kept all of these. Jesus, getting to the heart of the issue, he says one more thing. He says, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. See, Jesus was exposing his heart. He wasn't adding another command to the list. He was exposing his heart for the Lord wasn't his treasure. His His stuff was. You know, the gospel of grace, the gospel of Jesus is not a burdensome message. It is a freeing message of salvation by God's grace, unearned, undeserved, freely given through the sacrifice of of Jesus. A message that then is applied to our hearts and our lives through repentance and faith requires a response, response of repentance and faith. And it's a faith that is in the sufficient person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Savior of the world. It's a message of forgiveness that it's not the result of our attempts and our efforts, but the result of what Christ has done for us. 
It's a message then that is available and offered to all. It's a message for all. Jesus invites the nations to know and enjoy God. And we see that here in this text. He invites the nations, all people, to know and to enjoy God. Look back at verse 15. Jesus reaches Jerusalem. He enters the temple, begins driving folks out, not allowing people to carry merchandise through the temple, for that was a shortcut. Verse 17, he says, as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus quotes from the prophet Isaiah about God's house, really his household, his people, being a people from every nation. And he speaks of a new way that's being opened, that's going to be opened through his sacrifice, allowing all Jew and Gentile alike, people from every nation, tribe, people, and language to enter into his presence to enter into the most holy place, to enjoy the presence of God, a way that would be opened through his sacrifice on the cross. Jesus is inviting the nations to know and to enjoy God through him. And then he's calling his followers to practice faith and forgiveness. Jesus calls for faith and forgiveness. Did you catch the dialogue here at the end of this section between Jesus and Peter. Peter recognizes that this fig tree that Jesus uh, cursed is not bearing, it's, it's withered. He says, verse 21, he says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And Jesus goes on to talk about faith and this importance of faith and answered prayers and forgiveness. Words of Jesus that uh, have often been misunderstood and Twisted and abused, this is not a formula for answered prayer that is a guarantee in this life. Now Jesus models and the scriptures call for us to surrender and submit to the will of God and to place our confidence in Him. Not our own will and desires, but ultimately His desire, His will, knowing that He can and that He is able to do great and miraculous things and He will in accordance with His sovereign will. The call to be characterized by faith and forgiveness and the overflow of hearts that are transformed and captivated by Him. Signs of genuine conversion and following Jesus our Lord. Church, Jesus demonstrates majesty and meekness and this same Jesus dismisses fruitless religion. Together, we might say that King Jesus rejects hollow religiosity, calling for faith in him. He rejects hollow religiosity, calling for faith in him, and knowing and loving and surrendering to him, church, is far, far better than empty ritual and outward religious attempts devoid of inner devotion to earn his favor. So church, because he is interested in our hearts, let's examine our hearts today. Examine your heart. Examine our hearts this morning and ask the difficult questions of ourselves and where we stand before this God. Remember the story of of Samuel going to anoint the next king of Israel. Samuel's led by the Lord to 
Bethlehem, to Jesse's home in Bethlehem. And upon arriving, he sees uh, Eliab, one of Jesse's sons, uh, no doubt a strong and, and winsome fellow. And, and Samuel thinks to himself, this must be the one. This is the one that God has sent me here to anoint as the next king. But First Samuel verse 16, or chapter 16, verse 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord is interested in our hearts. How's your heart? In the scriptures, the heart often represents uh, not just our emotions and our feelings, but our will, our desires, our reason. Does Jesus have these things of you? Jesus wants these. He's looking at our hearts and he's calling our hearts. He's calling us to be captivated by the ransom of love that he has paid for our lives. Friends, King Jesus rejects hollow religiosity, calling for faith in him. So let's examine our hearts and then let's express faith in the king. Let's express faith in the king. The king who died for you. The king who gave his life away. The king who is the lion and the lamb. And perhaps there are some gathered here this morning for whom this message is new. A message of salvation freely by God's grace that has received the repentance and faith. If that is you, then you surrender to Christ today. Turn and trust in Him for salvation. Perhaps there are some who have gathered in a church building, this or another, for many, many years, and yet it's simply been outward religious practice devoid of inner faith. If that is you, turn and trust in Jesus today. Perhaps for others, a way of expressing faith in the King is a renewed commitment to Christ and His church. Perhaps through sacrificial giving, perhaps through a commitment of time and service and presence, perhaps through the pursuit of church membership. These are expressions of faith in Christ, who is the head of the church, even still for others. Perhaps a way of expressing faith in Christ is confessing sin. Confessing sin, secret or public, confessing sin and admitting that Christ is better, that He is better, that He is sufficient, that He is more than enough. Perhaps it's confronting personal busyness in an effort to more deeply cultivate a walk with Christ. Whatever the case, church, wherever you find yourselves, let's express faith in the King the good and perfect King who gave His life for you and me. Father, we praise You this morning. We acknowledge that You are good, that You are mighty, or that You are King over all, and even so, You are gracious and patient with us. Lord, we thank You for that today. We thank You for the truth of Your Word. We thank You for the message of the Gospel but I pray that you would lead us as we absorb these truths, as we reflect on them, as your spirit continues to work in our hearts and our lives and our minds, regarding these things. Draw us to you, point us to you, lead our response.
and lead us now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.